think about it like this. The most interesting conversations always happen after class. What if there was a way to bring that online and make it also shared? People don't really want the vanilla. Everything is layered over with like a veneer of political correctness. A lot of people just want the truth. And the truth is often found not in classrooms, but like in the bar two miles away where everyone gets together, just as it is in Davos. Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So, thanks. And now, on to the show. Why don't you, for my audience, just give a very brief breakdown of your work resume, if you will. Just tell us a little bit about your background, what you've been involved in, and yeah. A concise summary would be I studied economics, but was always interested in these broader questions of technology, political sovereignty, deep technology, and in the ways like my writing has shown people the ways in which we can head back to the future. And in that time, so in the past, I've worked in places as myriad as like biotech, medical tech, to so that's like deep, deeper technology. And now I'm in the video space. I was doing macro research for a while, looking at broader trends in not just the economy, but the geopolitical shifts writ large. But yeah, so always combining my interest in technology, economics, and history together, I think. Great. And so your current startup that you're working on is Superpeer, is that right? Yeah. So why don't you tell us about Superpeer and the basic idea there? Sure. Superpeer essentially is a started off as a one-to-one video platform for not just influencers, but anyone with uh, any skill to come on and share their expertise with their audience. And we started a few months ago, and since then, we've seen record runaway growth in places as myriad, sectors as myriad as like fashion and fitness and beauty to tech and finance and notable hedge funds, all the way to like mythology and psychics. And so we hit on this deep human need that the future of the creator economy is going to be with people who take this end-to-end approach almost and they don't just work on one part of the stack. They're not just a scheduling company and they're not just a finance company. Rather, they take the Apple approach and you know they do it all in one vertically integrated and create a superior product at the end of the day. I want to unpack all of that because when you go to the Superpeer website, it looks pretty simple. It looks like it's just, okay, this is a service that will allow me to sell video calls to people. Okay, cool. Interesting. But then you start looking into your ideas and some of the writing you've put out and some of the speaking that you've done. And it's easy to see that, oh, actually, there's a whole bunch of way bigger hypotheses underwriting the the super peer project. So I would love to unpack that. And we have plenty of time. I would love to go deep because I think you have some really fascinating ideas about just the the significance of video in building internet careers and and online community and networks. So I want to just go through all of that. I think maybe one of the best places to start would be my understanding is you've learned a lot from what's going on in China with the state of paid video there. Could you 
start this conversation by telling us what have you learned from the state of paid video in China? Yeah, so just to, I guess, recap, when I was in school, a lot of my friends were working in China and they still work in China. And it's always been a particular interest of mine because I always look at, and this is where my background in, I guess, political philosophy comes in, where I'm curious as to see how the dominant culture changes when there are nations that you know just operate in a completely different paradigm. So to me, that's why China was always interesting as a brief recap. But what specifically that leads into is how does that affect the cultural norms of a nation? And so I think there's this like technological element that people underrate the shifts in technology that happen and how that impacts a culture. And the way that technology has drastically changed China's culture can be best seen through uh, consumer. So consumer has the consumer culture in China is radically different than anywhere else in the world. And that's namely through video. Like I always say, people have been doing this way longer than in the West. And influencer culture, you can say, started and became popular in China. And that's because of the array of platforms that many of these influencers had. And when we think about an influencer, it's not really just like somebody who's an Instagram model. They're people who, like all of us, have specific knowledge in one domain. Like Navalo says, what comes easy to you might not come easy to anyone else. And they found ways to monetize that through all these different platforms. So you can look at Yuku, which is uh, like the Chinese YouTube. And you can see all the ways that it's very reflexive, right? So the creators itself shape the platform as much as the platform shapes the creator community writ large. And that even trickles all the way down toward individual influencers who they might have these like private WeChat groups and they might do live streaming events with this group. And they're essentially living in video. So their entire day is just hopping from different video platforms to one another. They monetize through that. And for a lot of people, that's their job. That is what they do. And that's a very respectable career to many people. So basically in China, it's just way more common. And it's also way easier, I think, to essentially pay for video time with people. I think it's baked into their social media apps. They just have figured out how to make it lower friction and it's also more normalized. One example of that I always remember is uh, Sino Weibo, which is what people call like the Twitter of China. And to give you an idea of how early China was on this shift, we can look at in 2018, they did, so Sino Weibo did about 35 million in paying out creators with about, I think, 2 million uh, paid subscribers overall. And the way they made money was they had like a 70-30 revenue share, but that's pretty crazy still that people have been doing this in the East way longer than in the West. And it's only now that people are starting to realize, but it's not something that's just solely pertains to China. It's a deep human need for connection that people have figured out and something that's lacking in this internet culture of social alienation. And my deeper philosophy behind all of this was really that we can connect people in video. There's no reason why we have to be alienated from one another, from our local man and woman to our governments and the decaying social fabrics that many of us see in the West. But I think video has a unique chance of repairing those relationships and not just connecting to your super fans, your 1,000 true friends, like Kelly, Kevin Kelly said in 2008, but really like people, even new people that you don't know and going deeper with your friends. I think video has a lot to do there. And that's really because of these tools that we're now building together. Okay, fascinating. So one of the features of Superpeer that you notice when you make an account is that you're aiming to build networks of Superpeers also. It's encoded into the very name Superpeer. It's not just about selling one-on-one video calls, but you have a much longer term, larger vision for how 
this is going to become a, a, a more community-based or network-based phenomenon. Could you speak a little bit to how you see that unfolding? One interesting model is, so everyone knows a network effect, right? So network effects where the marginal benefit to each user increases as another user gets, gets added, like Facebook. But what many people don't know is uh, Reed's Law, which is also the utility of these very massive networks scale exponentially with the network as well. So what that means is, so in English, essentially, when you have a big Facebook group, people split off into microcosms, right? And so it's, it's like a, almost a petri dish where some groups clump together, others go around, and they're still finding their fit. But we have these various uh, shelling points where people come together. And that's really the reason behind the super peer brand approach, which is you might have these massive communities, thousands and thousands of people. But look at like how many of those people talk to. It's not actually very many, right? Like how many of your friends on Facebook do you interact with on the daily? Not like probably less than 10%, right? It's not a big sum by any means. And so when you want to design something like this, one thing you have to wonder is like, how can we from top to bottom create the best experience and make it very easy for people to connect with one another, even inside networks and make these communities that have thousands of people even more engaged by letting various members come together in these smaller groups and create those bonds that I think uh, nobody else is doing. What do you see as the major bottleneck and how are you trying to overcome that? There are a few. So one reason I think China was able to do this is because people just pivoted all the way to uh, mobile way before everyone in the West did. So mobile happened in China first and then everyone else, like people weren't stuck with like landlines like they were in the West. So they could leapfrog ahead of these other countries. And so when you have such a drastic shift that enables different behaviors, so technology, like Marshall McLuhan always said, the medium is the message. And that changes the way people interact. As we're already seeing, it's like only now that people uh, in America realize the depths that the depths of essentially hell that they've unlocked by building these social networks. It's not all bad, of course, but there's a lot of negative externalities with no Pigovian tax that can help stymie this issue. But in China, so people have already known that. And so people have been doing this stuff for a way longer time. And around paid video, it's interesting because that creates essentially a market for people to actually offer up their skills and expertise. But also imagine this, there are all these people who, you know, in the West who do this stuff for free and a lot of the relationships decay. But I think that being paid initially kind of solves the problem of, is this person going to show up? Will they like me? Because at that time, you've already almost instigated this, oh, this person's actually a skin in the game. They might actually show up and they might actually treat me well. And that's something that if you do it entirely free, which we do a lot of free stuff. It's not not every call is paid. Of course not. I think free calls are our biggest segment by far. But really, paid creates a market. And I think markets really eat the world. And so when you create a market, there's so many things you can do with that. You can't just do when it's like very ad hoc and, and entirely free. And so I've read some of your blog posts and listened to some, some of your talks, and I have a sense that there's actually a kind of broader, almost geopolitical undertone to the project of Superpeer. Am I crazy in sensing that, or would you agree to that to some degree? Uh, I think any product that you know wants to be exceptionally successful in this day and age has to be inherently geopolitical. And if you're not, I think you can't really go global like those words that it's almost a paradox, right? Like you you need to understand these shifts even before you can really decide to go global. One of the things that I think about is Thomas Piketty had this phrase of participatory socialism, where in his um, new book, Capital and Ideology, reflects on the 
I also read about this in my piece and American Napoleon, where growth in the West has come to a standstill, like a screeching halt. And when you see stuff like that, people are like, like clamoring to get access to some of this record wealth that like central banks have put into money markets. And people want to cut, but it's not clear that even UBI will save them, right? Like it's not clear that any of these government measures will actually work. So this is a unique way of allowing people who I think everyone has some skill in some respect to, uh, like Balaji said, or Sabalaji Srinivasan, who very eloquently said, having an audience in 2020 is very much like having a personal website. It's a necessary task. And the future of the world is in distribution. Superpeer helps people get that distribution. And it helps anyone across the world become their own solopreneur and have the ability and cash to do what they actually want. And so hopefully it's a way to help people to create growth and also to let people go and work on these insane ideas in public and have money to do. And do you think that video is unique among the other media? Is it because it's just so much more information rich and the way that you can see facial expressions and body language combined with audio? Is there something that's very unique and specific about video that makes you feel like it's really the future? Yeah. So when you think about it, what have been the dominant cultural paradigms of over the history of the world? We've had text, which has really become the, since the printing press with Gutenberg, text has become the gold standard of communication, right? Everything that we see is in text. My personal case and my contention with that is that Text is not very high bandwidth. There's a lot you lose in text. You can make the Wittgenstein claim that this is all a language game, right? So anything can be taken out of context, like we see with social media. Everyone is getting canceled left and center because everyone misunderstands everyone else and they take it with their own ideology. And like that John Carpenter movie where it's you have to put on glasses to specifically remove yourself from that ideology. Whereas video is a bit different. So video is incredibly high bandwidth, like you said. There's a lot that you can do in video with not just body language, which like, as we know, has a huge effect on how you interact with other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like humans are, like there's a reason the word ape both means primate and to imitate because this social aping that we do is necessary within the human species. It's something that we do instinctively and we don't need to be taught to do it. It's just part of our system. And so video in a way is the last medium where when you think about VR and when you think about AR, that's higher contextual, higher fidelity, higher resolution video. Mm -hmm. It's And with VR, you can tailor it to individual people, but really that's just like adding this dimensionality to video. So what I always found as a bit peculiar is people are somehow saying, we're going to go from text-based platforms with some video all the way to VR. And to me, that was a bit ludicrous. There has to be some middle step where people slowly get warmed up into this new world, this brave new world we're all, we're all heading into. So I think that's one thing what we're doing with I think that in the live streaming space, you'll have people like Casey Neistat learn in public, do stuff in public with his audience. And because being live is the highest bandwidth thing that there is, things can happen in live, the degrees in freedom is uncapped. You can do all sorts of things. And these people, when we add features, like a lot of it has been pioneered in gaming, but people haven't made that uh, cognitive shift yet. I think mm. in technology of like how much of this stuff or engagement is was pioneered in gaming, but people just wrote it off and they didn't really understand it. Maybe out of, they didn't want to, maybe out of, they just wouldn't learn. But I think when we add those stuff in and create like exceptionally engaging video platforms, I think that'll be like the time when you see creators like Casey start to make a million a day, 10 million a day, a billion a day. And people think it's far-fetched now, but just think about when these platforms really go global and when the creator gets a slice of this revenue. Imagine if, creators instead of ads got paid 
through a percentage of YouTube's revenue, like how much money would they be making? And I think that's the future. Fascinating. So where do you think the biggest arbitrage opportunities are right now? So for instance, would it be podcasting where people are currently paying, let's say five bucks a month to just get exclusive access to the podcasts of the people they really like listening to? Is that an example of the huge arbitrage opportunity where all of a sudden that podcaster can just let people pay to actually hang out with them in a way and they could potentially charge way more or something like that? Where do you see the most exciting places in the current digital economy where people are not earning half as much as they could with video, but would with something like Superpeer? Yeah, I think it's pretty incredible to see it uh, take place in like Substack, for example, where you have this breadth of funnel that people do with a Substack, they do free posts, and Mm -hmm. they have to work out this algo to figure out, okay, if I post two times a week for free, I can do one paid a week or one paid a month or something and kind of figure it out that way. And they're doing free posts to essentially get themselves the distribution and build up that audience. And that's why people even do Twitter threads. It's it's for that breadth of funnel approach and to interact and go attract a wider amount of people. However, Superpeer comes in when you want to go deep with people. And even on our video platforms, our new product channels that'll be coming out, the live streaming product, that will allow people to go really deep with like a thousand true fans. You can almost think of it as like an antithesis of YouTube because YouTube, what is YouTube? It's just you're trying to get as many people uh, using clickbaits, using clickbait titles and stuff to watch your video, right? You don't really care about going deep with each person in YouTube. However, the real opportunity, and this is something that like OnlyFans has done very well, is you continually feed your audience like bits and morsels of content. And that, in effect, is like what they call it's creating almost a sunk cost for people where they, they almost feel like, okay, I've paid this much, I might as well pay some more. And there's a lot of behavioral economics that goes into this stuff. But that really, when we think about an arbitrage opportunity, I think it's to do with text and then video. But when Podcasts are a bit different, I think, because podcasts are people listen to them just very casually in the car or something and traveling or while they're working. But when you really connect with somebody's writing, you have all sorts of follow-up questions. And so every subsect writer I know in like the top 30 do these conference calls, right? So they do conference calls with their subscribers as part of their package, like mm-hmm. my friend Bern Hopart. And um, Bern's an exceptionally smart guy. I think everyone should subscribe. But it's very different hearing him talk and you're like, this guy is the real deal, right? It's almost two different modalities of experience. You read his writing and when you ask him follow-up questions, it appeals maybe to different people, but it's really going deep with them that I think there is such a strong arbitrage there. Okay, interesting. So you actually think it's writers who might have the most to gain from shifting a bit to video. And when you mentioned... Hobart, is he currently monetizing through Superpeer or you're saying people like Hobart are including free conference calls within their paid, their general kind of paid offering? Yeah. So Burn is on Superpeer. The issue that I think many uh, subsackers would face is that they think about it almost like a poker player of thinking in bets, which is if I had an hour to spend and I could do like a one-on-one call, let's say with one of my subscribers and I couldn't use that time to invest in my Substack which might attract 500 more subscribers. The calculus is a bit off. So this is the thing with one-to-many with the live streaming, which is if we can make it exceptionally easy for the economies of scale to work out, then of course, like we've made a market and more people will go out and do it and and they can reach a larger sum of people because the economics finally makes sense and it's uncapped. Like there's no 
literal cap on how many people you can have in that room and you could be making like knowing burn you can make 10,000 in an hour or 100,000 I wouldn't be surprised and it's very tough to do that with one-to-one this is why other platforms like GLG and stuff fail because it doesn't scale but yeah I think a lot of these writers will become the cultural juggernauts in the future when this is something that like Balaji Srinivasan is also working on with like mediafund.com and uh, giving writers a slice of the cut of the stuff that they write about if like he invests or somebody else invests like you want to give these writers the people who go deep and research these topics as varied as like platinum mining and cobalt mining to new video platforms if it's interesting to people and they invest then writers should get a cut and get all the upside Okay. So I find this super interesting. And like I alluded to at the beginning, I actually think this is perhaps a bit more profound than it might seem at first. So I think a fun exercise would be to break down a little bit what from your experience so far with Superpeer and just what you're observing, what in terms of optimal kind of arrangements or scenarios with how exactly Superpeer fits in different types of funnels. So we can start with, uh, we'll say a little bit more about the Substack example, an opportunity for people who are doing paid newsletters to also do video conferencing on an additional kind of paid basis. Could you say in a little bit more detail, what do you think is the optimal way of kind of organizing that funnel exactly? Yeah, you can break down every business into how, well, really, I think for many businesses now, the, the key moat that differentiates them is their distribution strategy. Like most technology is really the same, right? Like most people write about the same stuff. Most people think the same way mm. and there's not really a huge variance in, in how people act. What's really different is what is their audience like? Can you galvanize them? Are you very charismatic? Anthony Pompliano or Elizabeth Holmes once was, and can you make them do things? Not to say that Pomp is like Holmes, but you get my point. Do you have a very unique way of attracting and keeping subscribers without churn? So Superpeer is, I would think of it as like a picture, picks and shovels because essentially what we're doing is we create leverage. That's another way to think about it. It's like we're creating leverage for anyone who has an audience or a growing audience rather to go out and give and using our technology and distribution, give them a way almost to increase that using a flywheel. So we're thinking about eventually doing a marketplace, but we don't don't want to treat people like commodities, which I think many other platforms do. I don't want to name names, but it's very common to put somebody's face up and oh, if you pay 500 bucks, you can talk to them for 30 minutes. And to me, that always felt a bit disgusting. Like it's right. some people, I think many people more than we think have exceptional abilities and to just treat them by how much they charge per hour, I think is very wrong because time is not fungible. Like the hour that you have with your family is very different than the hour you might spend with your kids to the hour that you might be eating lunch at work alone. Those are all very different values of your time. And yeah, so I think anyone who is understands that the future is distribution, I think would really like Superpeer because we just make that easier for everyone. Using our new product, you can be able to stream anywhere, you can monetize instantly, and using subscriptions, obviously. So free subscriptions, paid subscriptions will all be included. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, so being the ecosystem, so you don't have to go elsewhere. And the unique part of that is a lot of the team has been in community building. I run a community for my own podcast. And you see the issues that people have and essentially we're just trying to fix those. And you could even say it's very selfish of me because I'm building this for my own troubles. And then I talk to a lot of people who have the same troubles and it's okay if I can solve this. I think this would be a huge zero to one invention. 
I want to pause on something I think really important that you mentioned, which is that there does just feel something a bit icky about offering video time for money in this transactional way. And I would say that is probably one of the big bottlenecks for this type of thing becoming popular in the West. And just because I, from my own experience, because I, you got me on Super Peer and I've been playing around with it and, and using it. And I personally feel timid. Like I don't particularly want to be uh, mentioning in my free newsletter or on Twitter, like being a salesman, asking people to book time with me for money. So I'm curious from your perspective, like what you're observing with people who have been successful and also just from your own personal perspective about strategy and, and the future of these things. What are some specific examples of how Superpeer can facilitate really meaningful and valuable kind of video relationships that's profitable for the creator in a way that just works well and is smooth and makes everyone happy and is not like awkward and transactional? So the transactional element is a question we get a lot. And when people say that, I point them to the gradual shift that's been happening over the last decade with not just the creator economy, but how many people pay for content. So 10 years ago, could Substack have been possible? I don't think so. Like, could Patreon have been possible? I, again, don't think so. I think these are broader cultural shifts where people realize that people like are working day and night to make this stuff. And some of it is very good. And when you tell people that, okay, you could be paying a middleman with ads, or you could just be paying the creators itself and have a stake in what they're building, the conversation looks very different because people suddenly, the light bulb goes off in their head and they're like, huh. That's actually a good point. So I get a stake, I can contribute, I can be part of something when so many people aren't part of any community. But that's why we're seeing like this growing rise of like existential depression in the West and people pay 10 bucks or something. So what I would say is that for people who think it's very transactional, that on our platform, like I said, with time not being fungible, we have tons of people doing this stuff for free. Like they donate it, they just do it entirely for free. They don't take money at all. And what we allow people to do is, so 15 minutes, like a lot of people do free 15-minute sessions. And that's something that's been very popular over the summer with all the protests. So trying to give back in any way that they can. And people will give out their time for free. But let's say you want to do an hour and you want to do a company deep dive with somebody. The value of your time is very different then, right? If people want to just tell you how awesome you are, everyone would do that for free, right? No one would turn that down because of their own ego. Whereas if you want to book time, let's say I wanted to book time with you for an hour and uh, chat to you about your business and go really in depth about something in particular. And I'm expecting a lot from you, right? If there's this expectation that you come very prepared, that you're switched mm -hmm. on, uh, the value of your time is very different at that point, as it should be. So if somebody wants to, I don't know, do a partnership with you or a big company wants to go and hire you for something, it's pretty ludicrous that you're just expected to drop everything and, and just do it, right? When the value of your time is very different than just a casual chat with your friends or significant other. So the culture is changing. I guess that's the biggest thing, which is like slowly this model of this very icky, oh, I don't want to pay. When you realize that like when you do that, you're solving the mechanism in which people show up. So that's a big problem that you see even with other companies. Like you might book this time. There's a very, again, won't name them, but very notable company that is one-to-one -one matching like algorithmically. And now they're doing it over video and no one shows up. No one just shows up and you're like, okay, so I booked an hour or 30 minutes or 45 minutes and the person doesn't show up. So you're just left with an empty block. And so as that happens, people are like, okay, third time's enough. I don't want to keep doing this. If people want to talk to me, let's schedule something. And it doesn't have to be paid, of course, but having that market makes people, like I say, uh, when people say bring your best self to the conversation, it means bring the best version of yourself. So I want people, and this is what Superpeer has done very well, where 
think like we think and act like a premium brand <clears throat> so that people reflect those ideals. And there's this line from Hamilton, which is he takes and he takes and he takes. And I always thought we wanted to be the exact opposite of giving back at every stage because we couldn't do any of this stuff without the creators. Like we haven't done any of the hard stuff. It's really creators with their audiences that have done the heavy lifting. And, and like I said, we're like the lever in which they can use to move the world. Yeah, it's amazing. So do you see particular patterns that work particularly well? So for instance, do Substack writers, do they put a link at the bottom of the newsletter saying, here's my super pure link? Does that work well? Or I see people sometimes put it in their Twitter bios. Does that actually convert? Like what patterns are you seeing about uh, ways to use super pure that actually seem to work quite well? Yeah, so I'd say the biggest way is social proof. So people pin, pin their super pure link like on their Twitter and as you get progressively bigger audiences and people are like, wow, this guy's awesome, they'll see that. And as people leave reviews and you can ask people to do that, would you mind just if you liked it, would you mind posting something about it or whatever? And that works very well. I'm very surprised at how well that works because humans, it's like the whole mimetic desire thing, right? As you see people uh, start to get a lot of attraction, you're like, I want to be part of this journey. And yeah, it works in Substack. People put their links and stuff. But I think you need to identify a deep need in which you can help. And once you have that, and many people can do that, right? Like many people are very good at certain things that anyone across the world would need help with or they want to learn more about. Or if you do anything and you're learning in public, that's, I think, the best way to use SuperPeer, which is, I just feel bad when people, I'm not a huge fan of Patreon because it feels like you are like begging, right? And I want mm. people to come out of the gate with providing value. Everyone has value, but it's somehow very cliche to do that, to even say that, that you have value. And to me, that's uh, slowly changing. And that's something that has already changed in the East. But now people are like, okay, I'm already paying for content. So why is this any different? And it's not. And people become friends off the platform, right? So that's the other astounding thing, which is sure that might hurt us because they leave the platform. But if we do a good enough job, they'll come back. Okay, interesting. So basically, you think that one of the big things is to get some kind of social proof. So just get someone to who can endorse your the value of your video calls. And then and what do you do with that? Is there a review system on SuperPeer? Or like, where do you display that social proof? Or how do you do that? Yeah, so we do leave we do allow people to leave reviews. We don't post it anywhere yet, anywhere yet as a way to because we want to do this in the best way possible. You have like one chance to adequately, adequately do it. Otherwise, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like People don't really forget if you treat them like commodities, for example. So that's something we're very aware by. But no, like what would be best is even if the reviews are on their site, Twitter almost being like the front page of the internet now is a much better way to be like, would you mind posting something or whatever? And that usually works. Or what people will even do is post video clips. That's something we want to make easier, just sharing video clips from your conversation. and sharing that to all your different platforms, right? Whether it be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And that's another way uh, people can do it. Okay. Sharing specific parts. But uh, I guess to answer your question, it's really, yeah, on all these distribu on all these platforms where you have distribution, having your audience itself propel you forward. Look at how Substack does it. A lot of people will get subscribers when their friends on Twitter, very famous people are like, hey, go subscribe to X person. That's just another form of social proof. Sure. So just to... To use me as an example, not out of self-interested reasons, although I guess somewhat out of self-interested reasons, but for the genuine reason that 
I like, I'm not super huge. I'm not like massive on Twitter at all. I have a hearty amount of followers at around like 15,000, 17,000, something like that. So not huge at all, but I have a non-trivial audience for someone like me, like just throwing my super pure link on my bio. Is that actually going to make me money? Yeah. So the thing is it can, you just have to reference it. So many people in think tweets that or, or yeah, where? In tweets. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Think about how many people repeatedly post your Substack, right? Like it's like for some people every day, like they're talking about their Substack. You have to do the same in this case. Like it's not really any different in the social model. Okay. Um, the sure. social contract you sign with Substack is, is uh, the same with us. If you want to grow your audience, you have to talk about it. It's you have to talk about what you're doing. And there's that Cohen saying, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? I don't think so. It only makes a sound if somebody's around to hear it. So you have to talk about it. Otherwise, it's it's a new product. It's We're growing, but people are still getting used to the idea. Uh, many people are. And so you have to talk about it, right? I don't really see how people would get like tens of thousands of dollars a month if they don't even bring it up more than once. Gotcha. That makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Talking about the thing is one of the big drivers of getting sales or revenue for the thing, of course. So that makes a ton of sense. And I know people who are experts in fields and they're, they actually have even larger followings than mine and they would like to do things like this. They'd like to get into consulting. And this is essentially kind of like low level freelance consulting that can be sometimes as lucrative. I think I saw Peter Levels, who's like a well-known indie hacker with with the large oh, yeah. personal audience. He charges right. something like thousands of dollars an hour, I think, or something like that, if I recall. Yeah, he does so, like five hours for a few grand, I think. That's basically like what most people think of as consulting. So like I know people, I could actually uh, think of some off the top of my head who probably could just throw up a link on their Twitter profile and and make decent money, especially for like experts in different fields, whether it be, let's say, like behavioral psychology or whatever the case might be. Do you have any other tips for people like this who want to get started and using Superpeer? Get started yeah. with So I guess one good model is you can reach out to a lot of the people in your community. You're like, hey guys, I'm doing a discount or I'm doing it free for the first 10 calls. If you like it, please tell people about it. Have them cultivate this new trend that you're doing as many people do when they have a free Substack and they want to go paid in the Substack in the Substack description it's a talk about it right talk about why you want to go paid talk about what the plan is going to be how you're going to change and so it's the same thing here where you're like hey guys I know you all like my stuff and these are your latent audience members who they've had no way to contact you you're like I'm offering up a day a week and I'll be doing five calls this day free for you guys as you subscribe and maybe on different channels and get them for free do a chat and have them almost e evangelize what you're doing. And and that's like the mechanism that I think works where if you're doing well and you actually have something and you're very interesting, nobody would balk at that. It's I'm helping out somebody who's given me so much. And right. if I can help them back, I, I think many people are just very generous. It's just, we just have to give ways for people to do that. If you offer up your time very graciously, I think nobody would be remiss at the idea of not offering up your services to anyone else. For sure. Okay. I want to make sure there's plenty of time to talk about some of your bigger ideas around technology and society and politics. But I, I do think this kind of deep dive into the nitty gritty of how to do paid video and how Superpeer is trying to facilitate it is quite worthwhile. I would say there's maybe just one more thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is I believe you have a longer term vision of not just the paid one on one or paid one to many video calls, but also of this video content kind of being archived and then monetized passively. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah. So what people will be able to do essentially is you people might not be there live, but you can get a catalog of this video that's then recorded. And so that cultivates compound interest over time where maybe you have one viral video and that attracts so many other people to the rest of your catalog. It's almost like this backlog of right. content that you've done. And I think it's a passive investment because the culture writ large right now is is one of binge watching, right? You want to see somebody's journey over time. That's something like Gary Vaynerchuk pioneered, right? Mm-hmm. Which if you want to, you can basically see his journey over the last decade on YouTube. And you can mm-hmm. just watch from the beginning all the way till now. And I think that's what's gonna that's what's gonna happen with our platform, but a lot of other platforms in particular where as we get better over time, the value of your content goes up as you get way more of a following and you interact with a lot more people. People are like, wow, I want to see this guy's journey. So I'll subscribe. And so the reason maybe- this is perhaps one of the most interesting aspects to the longer term super peer vision in my perspective is because this starts to compete with online courses the way I see it. Because so the online course industry right now is is super hot. It's really interesting. There are tons of really smart, clever people building really badass independent online courses and making a ton of money. I've only recently started learning how to do this. And I've it's been one of my focuses over the past year or so. I've done a few online courses and each time I'm more, you know, financially successful. So I'm quite bullish on online courses. I and also they're just They've been really good experiences. Like people have really loved them. I've enjoyed them. They've been financially quite rewarding. And uh, so I'm going to be continuing to build online courses. Now, what you're describing though is interesting because historically in let's say university education, teaching the course and then providing kind of personal tutoring, these have always been very segmented and separated. And for obvious reasons, the tutoring aspect has never really been able to scale in a way that becomes financially rewarding with the kind of compound passive interest that you're the the, the passive compound interest you're talking about. So this is really intriguing to me because what it means is currently I do online courses where I use Teachable, right? So Teachable has a lot of bells and whistles, which make it quite convenient and nice to do an online course. But essentially at the end of the day, all I'm really doing is uploading video to a paywall and, um, Teachable has these nice bells and whistles, which make that particularly effective for doing online course content, but it's essentially video with a paywall. So also one of the things that people really want when they do online courses is that one-on-one kind of connection and a kind of more tutor-like kind of support system and relationship. So what you're saying now sounds super interesting and it immediately resonates with me and, and sounds very viable and potentially quite big because what it means if I'm hearing you correctly, and I guess I just want to hear if I if my intuition is correct, or if you want to expand on this at all. But basically, if you're an online teacher of any kind, and you're doing one on one tutoring or one on one feedback of any kind, then you could essentially be building a catalog of instructional material, case studies, essentially, that then later other people could benefit from. And so that's basically scale for the first time ever, the the one on one kind of tutor relationship could be financially uh, scalable. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And the other part is I've studied a lot of these like pedagogical systems and looking into what are the best ways of learning. So you have Benjamin Bloom's Two Sigma problem that essentially delineates when you focus on mastery learning in a one-on-one setting, you get results that are two standard deviations above the mean, which is like the public school system. And if we look at what actually works, how do people learn anything? It's okay, you read books and you talk to people, and that's about it. And it shouldn't be geographic. Like, learning should not be this geographic, okay, 
if you were raised in the slums, that's the best you can get. Rather, so many people learn from YouTube now. So the model that I see and the model that we're building is essentially almost like Aristotle's Lyceum, but on but digital, where you can get these study groups. I studied in England and we had tutorials of six to ten people talking about like topics at length. And the nature of having unique people in each discussion group made it the end result of every conversation very different. And I think we can do that very well online. It's just that the tools to do so haven't been very easy until now. It hasn't really catered to this group of people. A lot of the analytics and stuff that people wanted haven't been there until now. But yeah, that to me would be an amazing use, I think, of how can we teach people in a different way? Does it have to be constrained by geography? I don't think so. And to go back to maybe a more classical form of education, that to me has a prize going deep instead of going broad. So in other words, as I continue to grow my online courses and I have different co-authors, I have other PhDs and different types of people teaching the courses with me, I could essentially be building a network of super peers where I could add to my network these other uh, co-authors to the courses or the co-lecturers. And we could actually build a system where as the instructors give one-on-one time to participants in the courses, maybe that's like free for the participant because they already paid for the course. But then that tutoring session goes into the back catalog. And then over time, people might want to check out like all of the different bits of advice and teaching that Justin Murphy or Nina Power or whoever the case might be has given to all of her uh, past two T's, let's call them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So So every conversation that you may have with somebody outside of the group can now be publicly viewed if you want it to be. Right. So that's huge to me. That's that's a game changer. So think about it like this. So think about it like this. The most interesting conversations always happen after class. What if there was a way to bring that online and make it also shared? People don't really want the vanilla styled. Everything is layered over with like a veneer of political correctness and all those things. A lot of people just want the truth. And the truth is often found not in classrooms, but like in the bar two miles away where everyone gets together, just as it is in Davos, where the fun of Davos is not in like these ashen, dimly lit buildings, but it's really in the lively, gregarious bar that they have and people just talk their mind and they're drinking and whatever. But what if there was a way you could bring that environment online and make it publicly viewed? Because that's what people want. They want. They want people to be genuine. Like they want real genuine behavior of the people that they follow. Totally. This is where I start to get incredibly excited. Like I can hardly sit still thinking about basically how small scale personal truth seeking and truth production, if you will, suddenly becomes potentially super financially rewarding in these types of ways in a way that it currently just is not. And many people today currently see like genuine disinterested truth seeking as a, more of a liability than anything else. And yeah, so think about it like this. If Socrates was around today, would he be teaching at Harvard or would be or would he be like an online instructor of people and doing the Socratic dialogues with people that he meets online? I think it would be the latter. Like I'm not super bullish on I'm way more bearish on the former than the latter because you meet arguably the most interesting people in the world when you make yourself out there. That's probably the only reason that I started cultivating more of a, more of an online presence where I was like, wow, the people that read my stuff, the people that watch my videos, the people that follow me are exceptionally wonderful conversationalists. And they, they always are incredibly bright and thoughtful. 
And like even just one interaction like that makes all of it worth it. So I'm sure you don't know exactly, but where on the roadmap is this particular feature for Superior? Are we talking like one year or like more like five years or what? The feature being the live streams? No, specifically the the passive monetization of back catalogs. Oh, yeah, that should happen when we launch our streaming product. That's really the hard part. And then when we want people to monetize these various parts, it's not as hard because the really hard part well, isn't bringing all of this stuff together, right? When we want to let people monetize parts of their videos or all that stuff, that's much easier than stringing all this stuff together on just with the engineering and the complex coordination that's needed for that. Whereas, yeah, like passively monetizing your work is really a function of letting creators do it and giving them unique methods in order to really share it. Isn't that all it is like to passively monetize? So the what I tell people is the more you put into it, like the more you put into these platforms, the better you get, like the more you get back essentially. So like I tell people, the more that you're on our platform or you're on Substack or anything, the value of your Substack is very anti-fragile. Like the more you use it, the more valuable it gets. Interesting. So, so it, it does very well with variants because even if you have a very like negative viral post, you get a lot of subscribers, right? So there's no real negative publicity there. You just get more and more. And I've seen it play out with a lot of my friends in real time. Same with this. Like the more fame or notoriety you get is going to be directly linked back to your personal account. And like yeah, this is why people can hit uh, like ungodly levels of scale because now you can just reach the entire world. You don't have to pay a middleman. And you can just monetize it all yourself. Totally. Okay. Fascinating. I guess my only last question on just the nitty gritty of video calling is you mentioned before about how useful it can be to take like video clips of a, a super peer call and share that clip or something like that. Is it not a, a significant bottleneck people's attitudes and expectations around privacy? Because I know I've basically thought of exactly what you've said. I do a ton of different video based things, whether it be online courses or yeah, tutorial type stuff or various workshops. And I'm always thinking, I want to screenshot this and show it off just to share people, share what's going on, share what I'm doing. And also, yeah, because mm-hmm. as you said before, it's an obvious necessary aspect of growing any kind of project. But I find myself, I always find my super ego saying, oh, no, that's going to violate their privacy. Maybe they won't like that. Maybe they'll be turned off by that. Maybe they're expecting this to be they like maybe they don't want their face on my like a uh, screenshot on my Twitter profile or whatever. Like, I just don't know. And so I err on the side of generally not doing that. Like, I, I think I'm for all of the awesome stuff I'm doing over video. I'm doing a terrible job of actually just sharing with the rest of the world what I'm doing and how cool it is and and what's going on. So I'm curious if you I'm curious if just a Am I right that there is a norm of privacy and this is like a difficult thing? Or is your view that actually that norm is just going away or is Superpeer doing um, some things to specifically uh, get around that? Yeah, just to preface, I care a ton about privacy. My background, I was working in crypto for a long time. So privacy is something that's very important to me and to a lot of the people that I know. Like, I'm not very happy to say the least when like, I see all these people being very haphazard with their users' privacy. To me, it's a, to me, it's a big issue. But what I should say also is that this is like a social contract you sign with a creator, meaning if you want to share this stuff, you should ask them and see if it's available. I'm not saying that people should take screenshots or just clip video without their without the consent of everyone involved. I think you very sure, much need sure. that consent. And there are ways to go around that. So if you're like, hey, th- this is a great conversation. Uh, I want to share it. How about we make this one free? Okay. 
And a lot of people are really okay with that. It's just all these things happen because of a lack of communication, I think. I guess that's gotcha. also relationship advice, right? It's better to over-communicate about what you want to do and, and then not surprise people when they find like their face plastered on like Justin's Twitter page. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, simple advice, but probably the right advice. Yeah, just uh, be open and honest about it and talk about it. And uh, so respect the the presumption of privacy, but then just be open and frank about um, offering someone like a sweeter deal if you're they're cool with you sharing it, that kind of thing. Yeah, give back, right? That usually works if because then all the proceeds will go to you, right? You're going to build your reputation, your social capital, and then that person doesn't really get that much. Like they're not the one who's hosting these conversations. They might be, but really it'll be to the uh, creator that gets all these benefits. And we're working on different ways of solving that, right? Like collab culture is becoming way more common with companies like Stir, where you can easily split revenue. And like, for example, you do a podcast with somebody, they get a percentage of the proceeds if there are any. I just looked at Stir. Someone sent that to me. I think I just joined the wait list recently. Yeah, that looks hot. I'm, I'm super into that. I would love to see that kind of thing take off. Payment splitting is a huge problem also for people doing this kind of thing. And it seems like that's something that Stir is trying to tackle. I think it's you, Stir, if people want to look that up. Yeah. So I think there's this area of really grassroots capitalism that's forming of like people in these groups starting to make really large amounts of money from Substack and all these things. And it's like the new mafia, right? Like not the PayPal mafia, the Substack mafia, who own all this, who own the funnel and who own this, these incredible audiences that love their stuff, love whatever they're going to do next. And they have a ton of power. And so I'm pretty excited to see where that goes and how they use that to maybe invest, how they use that to build new companies. And I think that's what people get. People with the line, first is tragedy, then is farce. Whereas while the entire world is crumbling, it's like pretty funny that the online community and the creator community is booming almost orthogonally to that. Yeah, totally. I so agree. I think it's super exciting. I, I get I get seriously amped even just thinking about how much still isn't even here in terms of infrastructure and how it's already really hot and kicking off. But once we have a few more technologies that really make these things more fluid and easier to facilitate, and as the kind of anti-transactional norms get eroded a bit by just behavior and just normalization, I, I find it just incredibly heady to think about the near future of paid content creation, especially for weirdos and creative intellectuals like myself. Uh, yeah, I love the longer term vision that Superpeer has. So if I'm we think about it, I'll just go. I always like giving uh, predictions, even though they'll probably be wrong. But one of my models, my newsletter is titled Dreams of Electric Sheep, because that comes from Do Andoway's Dream of Electric Sheep. And I don't know if you remember, but in the book later, made Blade Runner was, was the premise for Blade Runner. But in the last Blade Runner movie, so Blade Runner 2049, there's a scene where I don't want to spoil the movie, but essentially there are people working in these like virtual worlds and building stuff for these worlds, right? So there are people who like essentially build one facet of a world and that's their full-time job. So they live in this fantasy world, but at the same time, they get paid to essentially work on one part of it. And I think that's the future we're going to where as it becomes readily impossible to build in the physical world, people are getting paid exorbitant amounts of money to go and flesh out what's happening online in this what was once a counterculture now becoming popular culture and if you don't if you're not a part of these groups you're missing out on all this incredible growth that people are seeing totally i love it i love it now i think i only booked you for an hour do you have a little bit more time or yeah i have some time okay awesome because i have a few more questions i'd love to pick your brain about i know that you're a strong believer in this idea that 
technology is essentially making national sovereignty obsolete, let's say. I was wondering if you could just break that down a little bit more for the audience. And how do you see that? Yeah. So there are a few ways. So we had, I wrote this piece a while back, The Republic of Big Technology, where we see that these uh, micronations are forming from big technology companies, essentially like Amazon is building Amazonia in Seattle. And that's eroding the essential social contract that we have with the government. So when we have these employees that have these very, let's say, unique political views, and they want to institute that on other people, who really has the power? Facebook, if it was a country, would be the largest country in the world with like almost 3 billion people. So they have this extraordinary user base that they can push their own political beliefs on. And the power of a state that was formed near the Peace of Westphalia in the 1600s is now dissolving because it's not clear that if the US government was to break up these tech companies, or even if they should, even though uh, they definitely want to do that with Google and looking into Google and crafting a case, what does that lead to? As in, are they solving the real issue here? Is like breaking it up enough? Can you really break up companies or would you want to that they frame it as like a geopolitical risk, right? If they break up an American tech company, what happens with China? But at the same time, what does it look like to break up like Amazon? And it's very disconcerting to read Elizabeth Warren's work on this, where she like makes up some random claims when Google bought DoubleClick, but made it a monopoly. And you see that our representatives don't understand technology. So how can they do anything to stop it? So you're a believer that pretty much these big tech companies are ungovernable. Like we're past the point where United States lawmakers are even capable of reining them in. That's your perspective. There are things that they can do. So the real consequence, I guess, is when you look at the history of these companies, the second that you instigate some sort of lawsuit against them, that's almost the beginning of the end. So Microsoft was luckily able to come back from the brink, but they had their years in the wilderness, right, after the lawsuit, because then that's something that Gates attributes to being his essentially his eponymous focus on, as with many things, but on this case, and that caused them to lose track of opportunities. So the other thing we should look at is uh, Schumpeterian creative destruction is at all-time highs. And so for people who don't know, Schumpeter, the Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, I think in the 50s was writing about the creative destruction of capitalism where companies at the time had to be aware of like the innovator's dilemma of essentially if you don't work and you don't pioneer, other people will come and, and essentially take your lunch. And that's happening faster and faster. The length of a company in the S&P 500 is exponentially decreasing, right? At one point, you could expect like 80 years in the S&P 500. Now it's like less than 20. And what is the meaning of that to you? Yeah. So it's these companies will get, as new technology happens, that these companies aren't going to be able to catch up. So if you look at when everyone was saying Snapchat and TikTok, they always portrayed these companies as companies that Facebook would just you know take over, like Facebook is copying, Snapchat's dead. And then yesterday they posted record earnings. And you can only do you can only have that logic for so long until you start to realize no they're not capable of doing everything despite uh, these companies being like 25% of the S&P 500 they don't move as fast or as nimble as people think there are a lot of ways for companies and founders to outmaneuver these companies and still to do great things in areas of like deep technology something they don't really focus on or even just stuff with consumer because like now that the government's watching it's very hard to do these M&A deals and to buy them up. Yeah, we're definitely in an exciting time where people where there's a lot more opportunity than people think. And people shouldn't be so worried about like big tech companies taking over. Right. Now, you mentioned before how 
a lot of these big tech companies are increasingly taking up territories, right? They're building, they're expanding their holdings, and there are now swaths of land that, as you said, are more or less controlled by these by some of these big tech companies. Do you see that accelerating in such a way that to some degree we could even imagine kind of tech companies becoming their own micro nations that have a kind of sovereignty that is akin to that of contemporary nation states, like where they actually start developing their own police forces, their own yeah, laws. That's already happening. Like I think so I believe I told you so I'm still pretty active in the charter cities community and okay. working with like tons of people to make that a reality across some in Africa, some in the Mediterranean. And I was a researcher and still do help Pronomos, which you know is the only venture venture capital company in the world that invests in charter cities and made by Patrick Friedman, who uh, founded the C-Setting Institute. And all these tech companies are on the forefront of the shift where their own employees would rather live in the confines of you know some Google headquarters than spend another day in San Francisco. Right. And this is entirely speeding up the shift with uh, the pandemic because they're like, I don't want to risk my security, my health to some government that has no state capacity. They would rather tr trust it to Bezos and have him and the speed at which Amazon executes this stuff take care of them. And so Google has been working on this for years. Amazon is now the largest employer in Bellevue in uh, Seattle. And yeah, they're already building out these massive complexes to shore their employees from the dangers of the outside world, which I, you know, am very, there's a sense of this being very dystopian when you're like, okay, we have these people somehow building platforms for people, but they don't understand the plight of the average person. Mm -hmm. like you do see that with Project Veritas, Project Veritas, the, the company, the news company. Remind me. So yeah, Project Veritas was made by James O'Keefe, who essentially would go into and still does go and talk to legislators and leaders at these companies and catch them on tape saying stuff that would, no PR person could wipe clean and put them up, just put the videos up on YouTube. Then mm. people come after, come after him, sue him, cease and desist. But yeah, he basically won all these lawsuits. It's a form of free speech to record people. And that was passed, I think, in Massachusetts a few years ago. Okay. And yeah, like just putting up the hypocrisy online. And for people, they're like, okay, there's, so there's this one game that everyone is supposedly playing, but then there's the meta game, and many people don't know the meta game is what what's going to happen or like where the world is moving. Do you think we'll see content creators make their own cities or nations, like with actual territories? I think they already are. Right? Look at all these TikTok houses, and so it's a very big difference. Obviously, very huge jump between one and the next. But as they say, the future is uneven. Uh, the future is already here; it's just spread unevenly. And so the future of all this stuff will be like, yeah, people in these various tribes, like these internet tribes, and I already know tons of people working on this in Europe and uh, across the US, but galvanizing their audience, essentially, like Kanye. So Kanye is trying to do that in Wyoming. And, right. Um, I mean, have the charter cities people, have they thought about going to Casey Neistat and being like, dude, we'll make you a city, just endorse it, advise and market it for us? Ha ha is there anything on that front actually being discussed? So there, so there is. There are quite a few people reaching out to creators like that. I can't say who exactly, but I think you would know all of them. Like a lot of people are very interested in going off to Texas and like building their own like village first and then slowly and slowly adding to that. So you don't know of any particular initiatives that you're allowed to share that we could talk about? Uh, let me think. 
So I guess I could say one, which is my friend Dryden Brown at Blue Book Cities is working on a group of people who, what he calls eternalism. So people building out these heroic projects for the future, right? So planning like a hundred years ahead and getting a community of those people who want to do the same. Hmm. And yeah, that's at least one of his approach of finding the best people who fit in with this philosophy and kind of this philosophical refounding of of the West, the Western frontier and getting content creators and everyone to come sign up and, and join him. And it's working. Like people, people love a vision, right? They love to see action and they love to see, like they want something to believe in. And so in a time when it's very hard to believe in anything and many people are all, are very solipsistic, it's easy for people. There's a strong arbitrage in religion right now, I think. Yeah, hell yeah, absolutely. I have my own scheme that I'm slowly building and refining, which I don't have too much to share at the moment, but I'm super interested in this idea and I totally think we're going to see it unfold more and more. So that's awesome that thanks for that example. I'll check that yeah, out. Yeah, so I'll give you I'll give you another idea which is essentially that like over the past decade we've seen bits move atoms. And so what I mean by that is so you know this cafe model that so many people copy. So when you go into LA and you're in Venice or you're in Beverly Hills, you sit down at a cafe, that wooden table, you see the very clean, minimalist aesthetic, the like round lamps at the top, that was all pioneered in Melbourne in like the 80s. So that hmm. style of architecture was made in Melbourne in the 80s and everyone else copied it. And they could copy it because of the rise in social media. And so Instagram, this application in bits, was physically moving atoms as everyone saw Instagram and they're like, okay, I want my cafe to look like this. What and do you call that style that was made in Melbourne? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's an exact name for this. I remember reading this piece, the Airbnb, the Airbnbization of cafes. Okay. And how as Airbnb progressed, more and more people had these ideas from all these other places, and the mimetic nature of this would just lead to this cascading effect of everything looking the same. And that was my recent piece actually about Africa awakening, which it's very hard to find new culture nowadays. If you go to Western Europe or you go across America, everything looks starting startle, startling the same. Like you do the same stuff, you go to the same types of bars, you go and might like, okay, the sightseeing might be a bit different, like the Berlin Brandenburg Gate, but the actions that people do, everyone's on the same apps, everyone's like watching the same stuff. It's very hard to find new culture. And that's why I'm very interested in Africa being a place where, you know, it's actually pioneering culturally. And there's a sense where you need economic innovation and a lot of it to pioneer stuff in culture. And Africa has the youngest and highest entrepreneurship youngest population, but highest entrepreneurship rates in the world. And so they're able to bring all that growth and they're seeing it in fashion and music, particularly. That's interesting. I, w we should talk about that because I'm also quite interested in Africa, especially how China is taking over Africa. And a lot of people in the West don't even really understand this or appreciate the significance of that. And so there's something to talk about there and in a way that almost even connects with the stuff about territory and content creators. So Maybe before moving on to that, I was just going to say that I think if you imagine a world in the near future where content creators are able to essentially develop their own territories, their own cities, possibly, and you could also imagine <laughs> Superpeer and the, the future of paid video interacting with this kind of brilliantly. Because so I'm just thinking if I let's say I have a house or something uh, or a network of houses somewhere on some given territory 
And it's like a bunch of people that I've brought out and curated and invited and and facilitated. It's like super, it's like super interesting philosophers and scientists and really just uncorrelated, interesting thinkers and creators. And we have this like really interesting, unique kind of lived community going on that we build. You can imagine people would definitely pay to be there through video, right? Like you right. can imagine uh, really crazy experiments on that front. Yeah, everyone will eventually live in a Truman Show. <laughs> yeah, is that what you think? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think everyone's just going to be on video all the time. And uh, People see the Truman Show as a dystopian vision, but to me, that sounds so cool. Everyone having their their own Truman Show sounds lit. Yeah, it's it's definitely something where you're like, oh, I wonder what my friend's doing, and everyone's on video all the time. <laughs> so there's that peculiarity, but culture always catches up. Technology happens, and then culture has no choice but to catch up whether they like to whether people want to or not so do you think that people are in the west are going to realize that africa is actually this really interesting dynamic wide open kind of i don't know what to call exactly obviously it's a massive continent but it represents much more than that in terms of the various ideas and products and businesses and just all the stuff that could and likely will come out of Africa as it grows over the next several decades. Do you think that the West is going to wake up and realize, oh, like China is investing a ton in Africa. Maybe people in the West should actually pay attention to what's going on in Africa and try to get involved in growth in the future of Africa. Yeah. So big companies, in fact, music labels and fashion houses and a lot of investment firms are starting to look at Africa, but it's nothing like like in England, where there are tons of my friends I know who like, have been doing businesses, have been investing in Africa for the longest time. One of my friends' firms, I think, owns like half the stock market in one, one very notable African country and because there's no stock market volume. So mm. you could effectively buy up a lot of the liquidity and control it that way. But I don't see this as being a neo-colonialist thing that many people ascribe it to be. I think it's... So America's always had this culture of frontierism, of manifest destiny. But at the same time, like I think many people don't know what the outside world actually looks like. So it's going to be very hard for most Americans to deal with that shift. Africa itself is not like this one homogenous nation. It's filled with countless tribes, countless languages. East Africa is very different to West Africa. South Africa is its own beast entirely. And yeah, I just don't see a lot of people in the West or in America specifically understanding the shift. Businesses might, but I think it's, it'll be very hard for individual people to realize what's going on. Like you need to be a detective and look at these faraway clues that exist in nocturnal places. And I think that culture is very much missing in America at least. Well, I think something that China sees that the West doesn't see is that Africa is not just huge, but it's vast expanses of territory and land and resources that are not, uh, sovereignty is not secured. Like a lot of African states are weak states and, and sovereignty is not particularly stable or secured. And when you have vast territory that's not secured through a strong state, then a lot is up for grabs and what you can build there, what you can do there, it's like fluid. And it's, this is actually what politics boils down to. It's actually, this is something that I think the West has become soft on. Like we've forgotten that at the core of geopolitics is a kind of will that moves between the lines of what is legal and what is not legal. 
And China is acting very powerfully in this regard, and they're making a ton of moves in Africa. And so I think there's a really interesting set of questions to ask or like frontier to explore mentally, that is intellectually about if there is this kind of vast continent that is very undeveloped and where sovereignty is not particularly stable, and you have a, another increasingly powerful country essentially taking its own share of sovereignty in this vast territory, what is the, is there possibly even an obligation or a kind of responsibility for not to rehash any like ridiculous old kind of like stupid or racist ideas about the white man's burden or any of that junk? Like I'm not alluding to any of that. I'm just saying if there is actually another rising global superpower that is scrambling for this territory, what is the appropriate attitude towards that for forward thinking, like ethical, active, whether it be founders or creators or whatever the case might be in the West? I think that's something like the West, like we just haven't been able to talk about whatsoever in the West. But I think as China increases its foothold in Africa, it's something that's going to find its way onto the agenda, I think, of kind of Western intellectual debate. Yeah, they have no choice but to realize, like they did with China, and they realized too late that this was very fierce, very strong-minded country that wasn't going to be willed by Anglo-Saxon bankers and financiers. They were going to take over, and China now is developing its own political philosophy. But same thing is going to happen in Africa as it catches up. It's going to see a cornucopia of innovation and really runaway growth that will change everything. And people don't want to realize that the center of power might shift, but if you don't understand them, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past, I think. I noticed that you've been reading a lot of George Orwell. I was just curious what you find most interesting about his work, other than the popular idea that a lot of people have in their mind, the whole kind of beware big brother notion associated with probably his most famous work, 1984. What do you find most interesting about George Orwell? Yeah, Orwell is an interesting guy. I particularly liked his uh, nonfiction work. That to me was a lot more interesting always in his fiction stuff because he lived such an exceptional life that you often wonder how was he able to do so much. I think before he died of tuberculosis at 47, I think like he was in the Spanish Civil War. He was homeless, which was my favorite book, Down and Out in Paris and London, uh, recounting his homeless journeys and wanderings and all the stuff that happened there, really because people look at history with a very rosy, with uh, rose-tinted glasses, whereas he gave like a very accurate portrayal of what life was actually like for most people. Because most people think if they lived in that time, they'd be rich and they'd be like an aristocrat. But like being a peasant in those times or being like working class was actually pretty bad. Like it wasn't, it wasn't great. And you start to learn that, okay, we've had some progress, but are we really so different from people in the past? And do you wonder that? No, we're not really that much different. So Orwell is his essays are like must reads, like The Lion and the Unicorn. But yeah, I would recommend reading all of his nonfiction stuff just for the vitality of knowledge and amazing insights into England at the time and how the Western world was dealing with all these various wars and changes. That's awesome. Yeah, I've never read the Down and Out book, but I have read a lot of books about the history of bohemianism and kind of fringe intellectual and artistic life. And one thing that I think is very powerful for people to appreciate from the history of bohemian intellectual life is how bad the great creative geniuses of history 
how bad they had it and how much they were willing to put up with for the freedom to work on what they're interested in and what they believe in. We have it so easy comparatively, like people are afraid of risking their career or they're afraid of some people on Twitter calling them naughty or whatever the case might be. Like people today have become intellectuals and creatives in particular have become super soft, I think. And it's really rewarding and edifying and inspiring to read about what the real radical, genuine intellectuals of the past, what they went through and what they were willing to go through uh, just to have the simple freedom to do their work, like living in absolute right. hovels, whether it be like in 1970s New York, when it was like a massive crime scene, but people like, you know, Patti Smith are willing to live next door to crack addicts and like actually dangerous, disgusting places just to have cheap rent and to have the freedom to work on what they're interested in. Or of course, the disgusting like Paris, hotels in the early 20th century that people were willing to put up with because it was cheap. And who cares if they're covered in lice every single day and they have literally nothing to eat on a daily basis. <laughs> if they're able to like work on their book, then they're going to put up with that. And uh, history is filled with that kind of example or that kind of case study of badass intellectuals putting up with extraordinary difficulties. And I think that's like an, that's a history that contemporary intellectuals don't know well enough. And I think George Orwell had his own experiences with that, which is right. why I mentioned it. Yeah. I have to get going now. Thanks. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Really great conversation. Really liked it. Thanks. See you, man. Oh yeah. I almost forgot. If you enjoyed that, you should totally go check out Ani's podcast and newsletter. The links are in the show notes.